everyone, before you get started on this episode, I just want to let everybody know that I have renamed the show Historically Haunted, and I also changed up my formula from the episode. So what you're about to listen to is an older version of the show. The new show is a lot better. I hope you guys stick around to listen to the much newer episodes that started at episode 18. Also, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm now at Historically Haunted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you guys want to email me any personal paranormal experiences or just say hi, you can email me now at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. And I have my links to all my new stuff down below. So I hope you guys enjoy and I hope you guys stick around for the newer stuff. All right, let's roll that old tape. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of History and Mystery, a place where we explore a historical and haunted location every once in a while. I am your host, Ariel, and today I will be discovering the hauntings and UFO sightings of the Great Lakes. Before we get started, I wanted to encourage everyone to visit my Facebook and Twitter page at History and Mystery. I also have a Facebook group that is the History and Mystery group page where I would like everyone to have fun posting haunted articles, spooky locations, or if you just need someone to say hello. My Patreon page is getting a new makeover for the new tiers, so stay posted for that announcement. I am also going to be making some fun bonus episodes for my Patreon-only members. I have also added my photos to my website from the trip I took uh, last month when I went to Old Town Sacramento. You could really get a feel for this place when you look at my photos that I took, especially if you look at them while you listen to that episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that last episode, by the way. I got a lot of great feedback. You can visit uh, my website at historyandmystery.org. On my website, you can find links and information about dyslexia, which I have. You can also look at my photos, like I said previously, and you can find links to my Patreon page and also my Instagram page. If you'd like to just follow me on my Instagram, the Instagram handle for my uh, page is history underscore mystery 13. I also got a new review on my iTunes page I wanted to read really quick. It is from listener NV710, and they said, Love this podcast. It's a great and easy listen. Even when I already know about the subject spoken about, I'm glued to the episode. Can't wait for more. Thanks so much for that review. Leaving a review on iTunes is a really big way you could help support the show. So I would greatly appreciate any feedback given. So thank you all so much. I am super excited to be back and get back into the podcast life. I took a little break for family reasons, but I'm back with the fresh places to explore. So without further ado, let's get on with our Monster of the Week. This week's Monster of the Week is known as the Mesa Pichu, and I know I probably said that wrong. There's a lot of Indian names in here that I just don't know how to pronounce, and Google Translate is not helping me much, so I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm going to butcher a many of names, but I'm going to try my best. This creature is also known as the Underwater Panther or the Great Lynx. 
This creature can be found in many Native American tribes' mythological traditions. This creature is said to hide in the deepest parts of the Great Lakes, but it can also travel up the rivers. The Great Lynx is the most powerful underworld being. Many pictographs have been found in the areas around the Great Lakes depicting this water lynx. The water lynx is described as having a head and front paws of a cat, it has antlers like a deer or bison, and the whole body of a large snake with scales, and some depictions have a fin on the end of its tail for swimming. According to the Ojibwe tribe, this lynx is said to be the master of all water creatures. It is also the master over snakes. In the indigenous mythology, it is said that the Mishu Pichu is locked in an internal conflict with the Thunderbird. The Thunderbird also comes from Native American folklore. While the Thunderbird controls the power of air, the underwater lynx is in control of all underwater beings. So it is an equal power force. This is why they are always trying to battle each other. Two great powers seeking a fight to prove who is greater than the other. I also found some interesting things about the Thunderbird and how the Thunderbird and the Meshi Pichu uh, fight together. So I'm going to find out more about that and I'll be doing a Thunderbird in another episode and I will definitely bring this guy back up in that episode so I can get the full story because I feel like there's something else going on here between the two of them. Back to the water lynx. The water lynx is seen as a malevolent creature that brings death and misfortune wherever it goes. The water lynx is also known for guarding copper in Lake Superior. The indigenous people in the area mined copper for thousands of years before the Europeans came to the area. One famous story tells of four Ojibwa Indians who went to the home of the Great Lynx to retrieve copper. On their journey back home, the lynx caught up with them, and in a growling voice, he accused them of stealing his children's playthings. He then attacked them from below their canoe, killing all but one. The one survivor made it back to his village to tell them what happened before he collapsed and died later that night. Even early French and English explorers claimed to have run-ins with this strange beast. It has been blamed for many shipwrecks and disappearances throughout history. Whether this creature still exists or ever existed at all, it is definitely something I had to put on my Monster of the Week. The Great Lakes stretch over 94,000 square miles. With all that space and connecting waterways into the Atlantic Ocean, it is no wonder that there are mysteries to be found here. Because the lakes are so large, I am going to give you a brief overview of the history of the lakes, and then I will take you on a tour of many haunted locations around the lakes, rivers, and canals that make up the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are found in the northeastern side of the United States. They also stretch over the border into Canada. They cover more than 94,000 square miles. The names of these lakes are the Horn, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, and Superior. Here are some fun facts I found out about the lakes. These lakes form the world's largest freshwater system. The lakes hold an estimated six quadrillion gallons of water, 
and the Great Lakes hold more than 20% of the world's fresh water supply, along with more than 80% of North Americans' fresh water. The lakes formed 14,000 years ago during the Ice Age, when the great ice sheets carved into the land, creating deep basins. After the ice began to melt, the fresh water filled the many basins, creating what we now call the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are linked thanks to a help of smaller lakes and rivers. St. Mary's River flows from Lake Superior to Lake Horn, Niagara River connects Lake Erie to Lake Ontario, and the narrow river of the Mackinac connects Lake Michigan to Lake Horn. With man-made alterations, the Mississippi is now connected to the Great Lakes as well. Throughout all the lakes, there are 35,000 islands. The biggest island is in Canada, and I'm about to butcher this name. I am so sorry in advance. The name of it is the Manitoba. Tolan Island and it is in Lake Horn. This island is big enough to have lakes of its own. So needless to say, the Great Lakes are massive. They are so big that they have been known to have what sailors call sea-like characteristics. The lakes have rolling waves, strong currents, sustained winds, and great depths. The Great Lakes have also been called inland seas. Now that I have put you all to sleep with that short geography lesson, what about the people who lived and used this lake? Before white men ever settled to this area, the Native Americans lived near the lakes and used this area to fish, trade, hunt, and gather. Let's step into our time machine and go back about 10,000 years. first people to live near the Great Lakes arrived by way of crossing a land bridge over the Pacific Ocean from Asia, although some historians think it might have even been from the South America. From here, they spread out over the land of what is now the United States and Canada. Fast forward to about 6,000 years before now, and the descendants of the first settlers to cross over the ice bridge to North America are now living around the southern shore of Lake Superior. They used copper that was found in the area for jewelry and ceremonial purposes. They also had a well-established hunting and fishing community spread out along the Great Lakes. The native people in this area lived in villages that were scattered around the shores of the lake. The people who lived in this area were its first farmers, growing wild rice, squash, beans, tobacco, and corn. Fishing, hunting, and gathering provided food in this area as well. The plentiful food allowed them to live here year-round, and they used canoes to travel up and down the rivers and lakes to trade and fish. Some of the tribes that were in this area around the lakes were the Chippewa. They lived on the eastern part of the Lower Peninsula. The Ottawa lived in the western part of the Lower Peninsula. And the Potawatomi tribe lived on a strip across from the southern part of Lake Michigan. Other tribes that lived around the waterways and valleys were the Sakanak, the Moscoton, and I don't think I'm pronouncing that right. Trust me, I looked everywhere to hear someone pronounce it but I couldn't find it, so I hope I pronounced that somewhat properly. There was also the Miami tribe. The Mascouten tribe was eventually driven out of the area by the Ottawa tribe. I know that there were many more tribes in the area, but it was really hard to find them all online. Plus, it's hard for me to pronounce all of them. But on the Milwaukee Public Museum website, I found a great map. So I'm going to post that on my Facebook page and my Twitter and my Instagram. And then I'm also going to tag uh, a link so you can go check out all the information yourself. It's really great. These people live with the land and they were thriving for thousands of years. And then the white men showed up. 
the first white man to come to the area were the French. The first French explorers came up the waterways in search of the Northwest Passage that would, in theory, take them on a shorter route to China. In 1634, Jean Nicolette prepared ships for a voyage to Green Bay. The ship had many exquisite things they were hoping to impress the Chinese merchants with, including an elaborate robe of Chinese silk. But as we all know now, there was no such thing as the Northwest Passage, so his hopes and dreams of good trade with China were dashed. Instead, his voyage charted the Great Lakes area, putting it on the map for the first time. After his return to France, the French decided to go to the area to colonize it. They began with building a networks of forks and missions and trading posts along the banks of the lakes and rivers. By the middle of the 18th century, the French had settled in the Detroit and Green Bay areas. That, at the time, was called Illinois County. At this time, the biggest currency for the French Empire in North America came from the fur trade. With help from Native American allies, they would ship the furs down the rivers and lakes in canoes to get them to the main port for shipment back to France. The French and English began fighting over land. In 1763, the French seceded to the area east of the Mississippi. The area west of the Mississippi was sold to the United States in the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Once the Erie Canal was built in 1825, it opened the floodgates for more migration to Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota states. This in turn began to drive out the Indians, who had called this land their home for a long time. It's quite sad. They were forced to move west or live on small reservations. Today, the lakes spread throughout Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and New York, as well as big areas of Ontario, Canada. I am going to post a picture of the map of the area uh, on my Instagram page so you can go check that out. Or if you are not driving, I encourage you to Google it and look it up right now because if you don't live in the area, I think it's really hard to wrap your head around just how massive these lakes actually are. Now that you have an extremely quick overview of the lake's history as a whole, now let's break down all the strange and haunted locations to see why these lakes hold so much mystery. We will begin our tour of the Great Lakes with the skies above. Though some people don't consider UFOs to be in the haunting genre, you have to admit they sure are strange. While a lot of the UFO stories you hear seem to only have one or two individuals reporting the same sighting, it's another thing entirely when calls come in from police, meteorologists, residents, and members of the military to report the same sighting. One such occurrence happened in Holland, Michigan on March 8, 1994. A police officer named Jeff Velthaus reported witnessing seeing five to six large objects in the night sky starting at about 9.30 p.m. Some people said the objects were cylinder in shape with pulsating blue, red, white, and green lights. Leo Greenier, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service office in Muskegon County, Michigan, looked at his radar during the event. He saw three to four blips on the system that showed them moving erratically. Three of the objects were moving towards Chicago. Hundreds of reports were documented that night. And I got that from a USA Today article. I just wanted to cite my source. Strange UFO sightings have been happening for a long time over the lakes. Another UFO sighting occurred on November 23, 1953, during a stormy night over Lake Superior. At the, some point during the night, the United States Air Command got a blip on their radar that there was a UFO 
in the restricted airspace over the lake. The Air Force scrambled an F-89C Scorpion jet, which took off from Trax Air Force Base in Michigan, Wisconsin. The fighter jet had two crew members on board, First Lieutenant Flex Monclaw and Second Lieutenant Robert Wilson. The pilots were having trouble tracking the object because it was moving all over the place. The ground control guided them and they took chase traveling 500 miles per hour for over 30 minutes. They went from 25,000 feet to 7,000 feet, and then they went up to 8,000 feet. The radar operator watched as the blip of the plane caught up with the blip of the UFO, and they seemed to converge. Next, the radar return for the F-89 disappeared from the ground-controlled inspector's radar scope, right after the UFO veered off and vanished too. No wreckage of the F-89 or signs of the pilots were ever found. The United States Air Force never gave a reasonable explanation for the incident, which led many UFO researchers to believe that this was alien in nature. If you have ever wanted to check out the Bermuda Triangle but can't afford a trip, why not check out the Triangle of the Great Lakes, officially known as the Lake Michigan Triangle. This triangle has been known for several mysterious events, starting with the disappearance of a schooner named the Thomas Hume. In 1891, the ship set sail across the Lake Michigan for lumber. The ship, along with its crew of seven sailors, were never seen again. In 1921, the Rosa Bell was found overturned in Lake Michigan. The 11 people on board were never found. The strangest part of the story is the ship showed damage as if it had been in a collision, but no other ship had reported an accident. There were no rocks near the area, and no other wreck was ever found near the Rose Bell. Up next is the mysterious disappearance of Captain Donner. On April 28, 1937, the captain was guiding his ship throughout icy waters. Afterwards, the captain told his crew that he was going to his cabin to rest. Three hours later, the ship was nearing port, so a crew member went to alert the captain that they were about to land. He found the door locked from the inside. With no response from the captain, the man had to break into the cabin, and once he did, he found it completely empty. After a search of the whole ship, no clues were found, and Donner's disappearance remains unsolved. Last, there is the disappearance of the Northwest American Airlines flight 2501 in 1950. At the time, it was the worst commercial airliner accident in American history. While flying over Lake Michigan, the pilot requested permission to descend 2,500 feet because of a severe electrical storm causing violent winds. Shortly after this dispatch, the plane was never seen or heard from again. No wreckage has ever been found, and the disappearance remains a complete mystery. Two hours after the plane's disappearance, a strange report was made by two police officers who claimed that they saw strange red lights hovering over Lake Michigan. The strange red light disappeared after 10 minutes. This leads some to believe that a UFO might be responsible for the disappearance of Flight 2501. Don't worry, I couldn't leave you guys without some good ghost stories, and boy do these lakes have a lot of them. First off is the Black Dog of Lake Erie. Just a quick warning for all you animal lovers out there, this one is a little hard to listen to, so you may want to skip ahead a few minutes, starting now. Warning given. 140 years ago, the ship the Mary Jane was traveling up the Weldon Canal. The ship had a mascot, a black Newfoundland. In the middle of the ship's journey, the dog fell overboard and the gate of the canal crushed him. 
After the dog died, the dog began to torment the crew with baying howls during the night. The story goes that the dog was angry that the crew did not rescue him. Now the dog's spirit is thought to be an omen. The dog has been seen climbing aboard ships from underwater. He then runs across the deck and leaps off the other side. Sailors take this as a warning of impending doom to the ship and her crew. Due to the Great Lakes having so many shipwrecks, many recreational divers come to explore them. And many of these wrecks are thought to be haunted, but a few of them stood out to me. First, we have what divers call Grandpa. In Lake Superior, we have the wreck of the SS Camlops, which sank in 1927. This wreck has a well-preserved corpse in the engine room. Many divers have nicknamed the corpse Old Whitey. When divers investigate the wreck, many believe his ghost follows them around. When Old Whitey shows up in spirit form, he looks like an old man, so the spirit is known as Grandpa. Grandpa tends to float behind the divers and follow them through the engine room doors and throughout the ship. People think he is still looking for his lost shipmates. Another ghost story comes from the shipwreck of the Emperor. The Emperor's shipwreck lays at the bottom of Lake Superior as well. There's a ghost of a crew member on this shipwreck, and he is said to be going throughout his duties as if he is caught in a residual loop. While the lost ships might have sunk to the bottom of the lake, don't think you're safe from spotting a ghost above water, only this time you might just see a whole ghost ship. Known as the first ghost ship of Michigan, the lost ship the Griffin disappeared in 1679. The French explorer named La Salle, along with his 35-man crew, came to the area in search of the fabled Northwest Passage, and he also thought he would set up a few trading routes along the way for France. His journey took him up the Niagara River until he ran into the mighty Niagara Falls. Historians conclude that he sent a search party to select a building site above the falls for the construction of a brand new ship that he would later name the Griffin. After the Griffin was built, La Salle and his crew sailed around the various water passageways and lakes, trading with the native people for furs along the way. Eventually, they landed on an island at the entrance of Green Bay, Wisconsin. They met up with another smaller ship from his original crew that had been collecting furs as well. The combined furs were 12,000 pounds and valued between 50,000 and 60,000 francs. So by now that'd probably be pretty much millions of dollars. All the furs were loaded back onto the Griffin and set sail for Mackinac Island where the cargo would be unloaded and then picked back up again on their return trip down the Niagara River. LaSalle remained behind with a small crew and four canoes to scout out more areas for trade. LaSalle never saw the ship again. There are many theories of what happened to her crew, but no conclusive evidence has ever been found. Stories range from the ship going down in a violent storm to attacks by unfriendly Indian tribes. Some even believe the ship was cursed from the beginning. Whatever happened to the ship and her crew, one thing's for certain, many sailors now speak of a cursed ghost ship haunting Lake Michigan. Many believe that this is the ghost ship, the Griffin. 
One type of ghost sighting is to see the griffin off in the distance and then it disappears into the fog. Another and more frightening encounter is from some sailors that see the ship on a collision course with their own ship and everyone starts to panic and the moment the two should collide, the ghost ship vanishes. For whatever reason, lighthouses and hauntings have always seemed to go hand in hand. The lighthouses around the Great Lakes region is no exception. In fact, the state of Michigan boasted 247 lighthouses in its heyday. There's just something about lighthouses. I don't know what it is. It's an eerie energy. Always out on desolate rocks or points far away from home, family. And even when you were allowed to bring your family along, there was always great risk of death or injury, especially when you were so far away and getting to a doctor when you were out that far was very hard to come by. And the storms that raged outside while you were huddled inside must have just been terrifying. At Sol Choi Point Lighthouse, Joseph Willie Townshead and his wife lived in the lighthouse for eight years, from 1902 to 1910. Joseph passed away in the upstairs bedroom of the keeper's house. Ever since Joseph's death, reports have been made of hearing footsteps going up and down the staircase as if he was still lighting the light and checking on it. People have also reported the smell of pipe tobacco throughout the lighthouse and the home. Apparently, he enjoyed a good smoke. He's also reported to rearrange the furniture, and for some reason, his favorite game to play is turning the forks upside down at the table setting. At the Point Oxbarks Lighthouse, a man named Peter Sook was the first lightkeeper assigned in 1848. He died on duty in 1849, leaving his wife, Catherine, to decide to take over for him without notifying the federal government. She served for nearly two years before she was replaced. She was Michigan's first female lighthouse keeper. Apparently, Catherine left an imprint on this place, even though she did not pass away on property. People came to see Catherine walking among the cliffs in mourning clothes. I guess this would be our woman in black. People have also spotted Catherine peeking out of second-story windows dressed in her apron. EVPs have also been caught at this location by paranormal investigators. Footsteps can be heard in the halls when no one is there. Giggling can be heard, cold spots can be felt, and the odor of tobacco smoke can be smelled throughout the lighthouse. There are a ton of haunted lighthouses here, and I don't have time to report on them all. If I missed your favorite lighthouse location, please let me know on Twitter or Facebook. The final lighthouse I am going to cover is Big Bay Point Lighthouse, which is now a bed and breakfast. They have a really nice website, and they don't embrace the ghosts like some places do, but there's definitely a lot of ghost stories here that I found. The lighthouse opened for operation in August 1896, and this lighthouse is reported to have many spirits here. William Pryor was the first lighthouse keeper. He was said to run his lighthouse with an iron fist. After he fired his assistant and went through a few that did not live up to his standards, he ended up hiring his son George to be his assistant keeper. About a year later, George fell down the steps and hurt himself so badly he could not recover. He died two months later from his injuries on June 13, 1901. After his son died, William went into a deep depression, and on June 28th, he walked into the woods with a gun and never returned. A search party was unable to find him. Over a year after he went missing, a hunter found his remains hanging from a tree. Why he decided to hang himself instead of use the gun, I guess we'll never know. The other ghosts are said to be that of a murderer and his victim. 
And we also have Our Lady in white here, who is thought to be one of the wives. Through my various research, I found that Mackinac Island of Lake Horn is so haunted that I think I need to revisit this and give this place a whole episode of its own. But I am going to give you a few highlights in order to round out this episode. Mackinac Island had Native American inhabitants since 900 AD. When Europeans arrived in the 17th century, they found the island mysteriously abandoned, even though the island was sacred land to the local tribes. No one knows why it was abandoned, so that adds a lot of mystery to the island to begin with. Fort Mackinac was built by the British in 1780. The British held the fort until the end of the American Revolution. They retook the fort in a very bloody battle during the War of 1812, and then it finally returned to the United States in 1815 with the Treaty of Ghent. The fort was also used for a prison camp and hospital during the Civil War. Today, it has been preserved as a state park with 15,000 visitors a day during the summer months. Not only were people killed in battles due to the hospital being on the grounds, soldiers and children died of typhoid fever, tuberculosis, and various other diseases. The youngest to die at the fort was only five months old. All the people who died were buried at the Mackinac Post Cemetery. Now these spirits seem to endlessly roam the grounds. While you're walking around the fort, it is said that ghostly piper music can be heard in the distance. It is believed to be the ghost of Private Felix Pleve, who killed himself in 1843. You can hear laughter of children playing in the hallways and on the grounds. In the Officer Hill's apartment quarters, staff have reported the moving of furniture. The furniture also slides around, setting off motion alarms when no one is supposed to be on the grounds. During the outside patrols, some security guards have reported seeing flickering lights coming from the fort. There have also been reports of hearing babies crying. In the graveyard, there is an apparition of a woman weeping at the grave of one of the children who died at the fort. Within the guardhouse, there are unexplainable cold spots even in the heart of summer. When visiting the hospital, visitors have reported smelling the stench of sickness, decay, and death. They have also said to see disembodied limbs, and these often show up in photographs. So you know how I mentioned this was a hospital, and especially during the Civil War, they didn't really have any way to take care of your limbs, so they would just kind of hack them off and hope for the best to stop gangrene from spreading. Yeah, that's pretty gross. I would hate to see that. The Phantom Piper apparently likes to move around quite a bit. He has also been seen on the shore in foggy mornings playing his piper. There is said to be an apparition of a man in uniform patrolling the walkway of the defensive wall. EVPs have also been captured of voices speaking in native languages, and the sound of gunfire from old shooting ranges have been heard. The Great Lakes certainly sound amazing. I would love to go visit. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode of the history and mysteries found at the Great Lakes. I used a lot of sources for this episode and I just like to include them here at the end. I use 
Mysterious Universe, Great Lakes Boating, History Channel, USA Today. Click on Detroit and the Milwaukee Public Museum. I would love for you guys to send me your listener stories. You can do that at historyandmystery.13 at gmail.com. You can also do that on my website. If you go to the home page, scroll all the way down, there is a suggestions box and you can send me your stories that way or suggestions for a new monster of the week or a new haunted location to explore. Be sure you're following me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for updates on my Patreon page bonus episodes I'm going to be posting very shortly. And I hope you guys have a fantastic next few weeks. I'll see you guys next time. Bye!